Okay, so in case Chris is wondering what the uh, sermon's about, uh, the subject's got baptism in it. The readings are got about baptism this morning. Okay, so uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. Luke chapter 15, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. One day, when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Spirit, in bodily form, descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, and you bring me great joy. Well, thank you, David for that this morning. Well, just to wish you all a happy new year. Lovely to see you today. Um, My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to uh, be with you this morning. And well done for braving the fog. That was a shot this morning to open the window and see that there. So I'm just going to get this in the right place. Um, I wonder if you've set a New Year's resolution. Anyone here, a person who loves setting New Year's resolutions, anyone broken their New Year's resolution already? Well done. Okay, one or two. I just want to say a word of encouragement, keep going. One failure does not make it all wrong. Um, I was looking yesterday through the list of the top 50 New Year's resolutions. Most of them are utterly predictable. Um, I'd like to, have, to save more money, lose more weight, get fitter, and the kind of such like, unusual. Uh, but some of them really intrigued me. Um, somewhat, uh, this is the top 50 of national newspaper put. Um, they said this one of them was uh, to break a world record. Has anyone here set their New Year's resolution to break a world record? Do we have any world record holders in the room? No, I was really hopeful we did. That was, that was, are you a world record holder? Sorry? Okay, eating. Oh, right. <laughs> there are many contenders for that, I'd imagine. Not necessarily in this room, obviously, but just uh, before anyone gets offended. Um, the other one that I saw that um, I thought was, was probably important was to, um, a New Year's resolution to improve personal hygiene. That's not mine, of course. That was just one I read in the paper. But I guess uh, that's something that friends and family would agree uh, of the person who wrote that down that was probably quite important. But New Year's resolutions, um, you know, we start with great intentions, don't we? And, and, and at the start of a new year... Um, you know, for us, Christmas and, and New Year can often be times of great joy and celebration and excitement and it can also actually be quite hard, times of, of where, where the, the, the disappointments or the bereavements or the grief in life can be magnified. Um, so sometimes we can come to the start of a new year either relieved that Christmas is over um, and looking forward to a new year or actually January's like, oh crumbs, another year to go. 
Um, what am I going to do? So I want to hold those things in tension this morning when, we, when I speak and just to, to hopefully for those of us who feel excited about New Year and what January would bring and, and what the, the hopes and dreams that we have for the year ahead, but also for those of us who are thinking, crumbs, I'm not sure what this year holds and frankly, if I'm honest, I'm not sure how positive I feel about it. Um, and so this morning, we're looking at um, uh, this story of Jesus' baptism but really we're looking, going to be looking at two things. And they're two things that are absolutely the heart and the core of who, what it means for us to be human. But, um, but also what it means for us to follow Jesus. And they're two words, identity and purpose. So just hold those two words in your mind. Because if I, I, if I were to ask you the question, who do you think you are? Um, I wonder what your response would be. I wonder what, what we would respond to if I were to say, what, who, what's your identity? How would you identify yourself? You know, obviously we often identify ourselves by our name. You know, my name's Chris. Uh, that says something about who I am. But maybe it's by our occupation. Well, my name's Chris and I'm a vicar. Or by my accomplishments, you know. Um, I'm not going to list those because there's not very many of them. But, uh, you know, occupation, accomplishments, by our faith, by our relationships. Um, lots of different things that we use to define our identity. And actually it's really important that we know who we are. Our identity really matters, not because we need to just know that this is how God has made us to be, but actually when we find our identity, when we know who we are, that has a profound effect on what we do and our purpose, and that has therefore a profound effect on the world around us. Um, To begin uh, this morning, I'd love us to watch a short clip from a great movie called The Bourne Identity. Has anyone seen the Bourne trilogy of movies? It's just amazing films. Um, Fantastic. So go home, watch the whole movie later and you get it. But um, for those of you who don't know um, anything about The Bourne Identity or, the, or the, this trilogy of this four films, I think, um, it's all about a man called Jason Bourne who um, has lost his memory uh, through a kind of series of uh, circumstances and, uh, and whatever and is now trying to figure out exactly who he is. And the whole movie is about that. So let's just watch this short clip. It's about three minutes long uh, that just sort of sets the scene for us. Yeah, they must have something. Hang on. Oh, what is he doing? Is it a game? Is he warning us? Is it a threat? Sir, look at this. What's that? Well, it's an angle of the street. It's some sort of alley. But if you, you can, can just it? enhance it. Who the hell is that? Marie Helena Krutz. He's 26, born outside Hanover. Father was a welder. He died in 87. Still don't have the mother. The grandmother, she's still there in Hanover. It looks like she's the anchor for this little domestic disaster. And there's a stepbrother. It's tough. The girl's a gypsy. I mean, she she pops up on the grid here and there, but it's it's chaotic at best. She paid some electric bills in Spain, 95. Had a, a phone in her name for three months in Belgium, 96. No taxes, no credit. I don't like her. I want to go deep, get a phone log for Granny and the half-brother, anybody we can cross-file. I want to know every place she's slept in the past six years. Have Paris get these out in the field.
making this up. These are real. Okay. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I come in here. And the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sight lines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign too, I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? How can I know all of that? yet not know who I am. Isn't it true that we, we know so much about so many things, don't we, now? We have Wikipedia on, on hand that can tell us all sorts of any manner of useless trivia uh, and kind of equip us for next to nothing. We can, we can, we've read more, we've seen more, we're bombarded with messages and adverts and everything else, and we have more knowledge than we've ever had, but yet I think for many of us there we have an identity crisis. We, we know all of this stuff, but we don't really know who we are. And that's a really important uh, question for us to start with. I think starting a new year, wanting to resolve that question. Who am I? Because um, our identity isn't just a personal thing. It affects what we do and how we live. I love the story of a young police officer who was taking his final exam at Hendon Police College in North London. The first three questions in the exam were, were simple, but then he got to question four. And this is what question four said. You're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath um, and there's an overturned van nearby. Uh, inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector, who is at present away in the United States. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, but you realize that he is a man who's wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, it gets better. Another man runs out of a nearby house, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. So the police officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and blend with the crowd. I mean, wouldn't we all? I mean, isn't that true though? When we, don't, when we, lose, when we take off our identity or we lose sight of our identity, we can become anyone. We're not the person or the man or woman of God that we've been made to be. Our identity gives us purpose. And this morning we're finishing a series that explores the question, who is this man? Looking at the start of Luke's gospel at who Jesus is. And we've come through Christmas where we focus in on, on the birth of Christ, that monumental, incredible event that took place 2,000 years ago. Where at the center of it is God coming to earth in human form. 
And we're looking at the identity and purpose of Jesus, all of which is revealed in the reading we've heard this morning. Um, So let's turn to that passage in Luke chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to have it open just so you can follow through. We're going to focus in really on one verse, but I just want to bring us to that point first. So Luke has been meticulously preparing us um, throughout uh, these first three chapters of his gospel with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Um, in Luke chapter 1, we, we see the, 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 kind of the birth of John, or the, the, the conception of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And suddenly the excitement of God at work is building. Um, Mary sings that incredible song of celebration that, that really says that the, the, the promises of God in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 2, that wonderful image of the shepherds. Good news of great joy for all people, the angels announce. Even for people like you, is in brackets. The shepherds get to see the Christ child. Those on the edge and the margins get drawn in to see the promised Messiah. And then in Luke 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for the coming ministry of Jesus. Simply put, Luke is basically saying to us, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the saviour. He's the promised one. He's the fulfilment of God's promises in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. And so at the start of this passage, John is asked the question, are you the Messiah? And you think, well, why would they ask John that question? Well, you see, for 400 years, the prophets have been silent. God hasn't spoken to the people of Israel. And suddenly onto the scene, John the Baptist appears. This amazing prophet who, who's radical and we would think slightly kind of extreme and on the edge. But he was calling the people of God, the Israelites, back to their creator. John identified himself as the one preparing the way for God. Um, the people there were a beaten down people. They'd come out of exile um, some 400 years earlier, 500 years earlier, returned from Babylon and Assyria, but were still under oppression, not in a foreign land, but now in their own land. It's as if they'd gone from one degree of oppression to another. And they were at a low point. The Romans were increasing taxes. They were seeking to expand the empire. Life was not easy if you were seeking to live faithfully according to the law. And they were longing for, praying for, hoping for God to send his promised Messiah. So of course when John arrives, they're going to ask him the question, are you the one uh, who's come to save us? Are you the Messiah? But John says, no, I'm just here to prepare the way for one other. That's Jesus. And he will come and transform you from the inside and out, bringing God's justice to pass and God's kingdom to the poor. John simply points to Jesus. Um, John, it says here, um, it says in uh, verse um, uh, 18, John exhorted the people and proclaimed good news to them. Good news is not a philosophy. The good news uh, of the gospel is not a philosophy. It's not a theory. It's not, I mean, it is theology, but it's about a person. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Everything about him is good news. Everything about him is good news for all people. Um, And so John points to Jesus. Jesus comes to the River Jordan, is baptised by John. And it's this moment that we get something of who the identity of Jesus, what the identity of Jesus really is. Jesus comes, identifies with the people. He doesn't need to be baptised for repentance, but he comes and stands with others. Those that he's called to meet and minister to. And when he's baptised and begins to pray... Uh, The heavens open, Luke tells us, and the Spirit comes upon him. And then we hear the voice of the Father. And this is what he says. You are my son, my beloved son. 
In you, my, on you my favour rests. You're my son whom I love. In you I'm well pleased. In that simple statement, there's a, it's a statement of identity and of purpose. And there are two things I want to initially just draw out from that. Firstly is this, Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of God. That is who he is. That's his identity. It's more than just being part of the family of God. The people of Israel were known as sons and daughters, children of God. That was, that was their identity. It's the identity of all of the people of God today. Anyone who would follow Jesus, we are children of God primarily. But for Jesus, there was something more than that. It was that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the fulfillment of the promises of God to all of the people of God throughout history. Every promise, uh, Paul says, is yes and amen in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all their hopes and longings. It's a, it's, this is a kind of incredible event, this baptism, when the Father speaks. You are my beloved son. There's something here of God himself made flesh. God himself in human form. Um, you know, Jesus has always been the son. He has always lived. There's an eternal part to Jesus. It's so right at Christmas that we focus in on the humanity of Jesus. We might, we, one of the biggest um, the tensions that the early church resolved was that, was that Jesus was 100% fully human. But 100% and fully God. And they held that intention. There wasn't that he was half and half or more God than human. It was that he was 100% both. And we hold that intention. That's one of the key kind of doctrines, if you like, of the Christian church. But Jesus is fully human, and we see that particularly in the nativity story. Um, And that's something that we we focus on. But he's also fully God, has always been eternally with the Father in in this wonderful relationship called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he has always been the Son. That this is a monumental moment when God has come to earth among us. You are my beloved Son. And, and, and when, when the father says to Jesus, you are my son, it's a declaration of relationship before anything else. It's that Jesus is who he is regardless of what he does. What he does just demonstrates who he is. It doesn't make him who he is. Do you see what I mean? It's that he is a son of God. He is the son of God, the Messiah. And even if he were to do nothing else, although of course he does so much more, The father affirms Jesus as his son before he does anything. His identity is set by God. The second thing is, on you my favor rests, or in you I am well pleased. Not just a declaration of relationship, but divine approval. I approve of you. Before you've done anything, my favor rests upon you. I'm pleased with you. I delight in you. I have joy in you. Before you've done anything, you are my beloved, my favoured, my son. So Jesus' identity is as the son of God, the Messiah, the saviour. And Luke wants us to be in no doubt about that. That's Luke's claim. He is the son of God. That's the identity of Jesus. But the second thing that we get from this is that Jesus is the suffering servant. And you think, well, hang on, it doesn't talk about him being a servant. But what... This, this line come is, is a reminder to, to anyone who'd read it of Isaiah chapter 40, 42. Sorry. In, Isaiah 40, in Isaiah 40 to 55, there's, there's this servant that appears time and time again that Isaiah's talking about. And Isaiah's talking to the, the people of Israel in exile. So they're separate from their homeland, from their temple, from everything. And he's bringing a message of hope. 
So imagine these people, a beaten down people oppressed by the Romans, longing for a message of hope. Maybe for some of us, just life is tough at the minute. We, we feel the pressure. We've maybe come to the end of our rope. Or maybe we just, what, what's facing us tomorrow in the office or uh, what's facing us in family life just feels incredibly hard. We're longing for a message of hope. And in these words, we find it, that Jesus is the suffering servant. And this is what Isaiah chapter 42 tells us. This is uh, what the people, people hearing, hearing um, the Father's voice would have been reminded of. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching the islands will put their hope. Jesus is, um, Isaiah is describing this servant who will come to fulfill the purposes of God. And the people of Israel would have known that promise to be the promised Messiah. The one who would come to save them. To bring about what they would think of as the new exodus. The new, the new journey out of Egypt. Not a physical Egypt this time, but a spiritual Egypt. A sense of their slaves in their own hearts. And Isaiah is describing the purpose of Jesus. That he's the son of God. That's who he is. But he's also the suffering servant. That's what he's come to do. And I love the description that Isaiah gives about the Messiah. Not as a military ruler who's going to take on the Romans weapon for weapon, fight for fight. That's not the picture we get from Isaiah. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice. But he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Those, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The, the bruised reed. The bruised reed that's almost broken, but not quite. The smoldering wick where the flame has almost gone out, but not quite. I wonder if we can relate to those pictures. I wonder if that's a place where we find ourselves, or those we know maybe would describe themselves. But he won't break anything. He won't break the broken. He won't snuff out those who are struggling. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? He did this. I love the story of the woman caught in adultery uh, in John chapter 8. This, this, incredible kind of, this incredibly tense and, and painful moment where this woman is dragged in front of the religious leaders and Jesus. And she's been caught in the act of adultery. I would always ask the question, well, I think it takes two to tango, so where's the man? But I don't think that was the point the religious leaders were trying to make. And she's dragged there, terrified, and they say to Jesus, okay, so here is a woman caught in adultery. The law says you should stone her. What are you going to do? Can you imagine the tension at that moment? What would Jesus do? Committed to the law. Fulfilled the law in himself, but full of grace and truth. And Jesus, as we know in the story, he, he waits for a while and he writes something in the sand. And that's one of those eternal mysteries. We'd love to know what he wrote down. But in the end, he just turns to them and said, okay, so if any of you here are without sin, you throw the first stone. And one by one, they leave until it's Jesus, because Jesus can stay because he is without sin. And he stays with her and he looks at her and he says, does no one else condemn you? And she's going to be wondering, well, what are you going to say? And then he says this, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation cripples 
But the promise for us in Christ is there's no condemnation. The promise for us in Christ is that God has come not to condemn the world, but to save it. He's not come to break a bruised reed. He's not come to put out a smoldering wick. He's come to bring strength for the weary and light in the darkness. That Jesus comes to draw alongside the weak and the broken. He comes to minister to those who cannot minister to others themselves. He comes to bring life where there is none and freedom where there's captivity. That's what he came to do. And he came to do it as a suffering servant. And this little line that Isaiah mentions that in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Well, the islands were a reference to the whole world, beyond the land of Israel. This was not just for for good people, not just the people of Israel, but every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnic and social background, every religious affiliation, every class or caste, every level of development, Jesus has come to bring salvation to all. All are included. Luke, in this one part, is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the suffering servant for all. For everyone. He is affirmed by his Father. This is who he is. The answer to the question, who is this man? Well, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the servant. What does that mean for us? I think we can ask ourselves two questions. What, the first question is, well, who are we? If Jesus knew who he was, if Jesus' identity as the Son was affirmed, we can ask the question, who are we? And the second question we can ask is, well, what is our purpose? As we begin 2015, these are great questions to ask, aren't they? Who are we and what is our purpose? Well, I think, actually, Just as the Father said to Jesus, he says to us, we are his beloved children. Our primary identity is not even our name. It's not even our occupation, our relationships, or any of those things. Our primary identity is that we are sons and daughters of the King. That we are his children, beloved, before anything else. He loves us. And you know, this morning, I think the Father will want us to know that we are loved, dearly loved by him. It's the simplest thing, but the most profound and powerful thing, the love of God. Do we know his love this morning? Do we know the Father's love? Do we know that God approves of us? It's so hard, isn't it, in life? We, we often want the approval of other people. And none of us are immune from this. We want the approval from our parents when we're doing exams. We want the approval from our bosses that we're doing a good job. We want the approval from our children that we're good parents. We want approval from our friends that we're, that we're doing okay. We want the approval from others. And, and for some of us, that drives us, and that's hard. That can be a real pull on our hearts, can't it? But you know, the Father approves of us before we do a thing. His favor rests on us regardless. There is nothing we can do that would take God's favor away from us. There's nothing we can do that would take God's love from us. Nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. That is good news. It's good news to start the year with, that we are beloved, dearly loved children of our heavenly Father. And upon us, his favor rests. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus received the Spirit and heard the Father's voice as he was praying. Maybe for some of us, that's where we're going to hear the Father's voice affirming who we are, affirming what, the, what he thinks of us. It's in that place of prayer.
Maybe that's what we want to make a new start with this year. A new start just in prayer. Prayer on our own, prayer in our families. Prayer together as we're gathering tomorrow night. Join us to pray. It's in that place that we hear the Father's voice. It's from the place of prayer that all things come. Jesus prayed. If he needed to pray, I think we probably do too. Maybe this year is a year we think, I'm just going to, my New Year's resolution, I'm just going to pray a bit more this year. I'm going to make more time in my relationship with my Heavenly Father. I'm going to get on my knees each day. I love what, I read a book by Bill Hybels last summer. Bill Hybels is a church leader in, in Chicago and, and he, he gives this wonderful picture of basically trying to find 15 minutes in the comfiest chair in the house where you just give 15 minutes of your time to your Heavenly Father. Where you read the scriptures, where you listen to his voice and you bring your request before him. I want to challenge myself. I want to find at least 15 minutes every day just where I'll pray, where I'll listen to the Father, where I'll read his word. And the bonus is I get to do it in the comfiest chair in the house. Where is that for you? Where are you going to hear the voice of your heavenly father approving you, telling you he loves you, speaking his voice to you? Are you sure of your identity? God wants us to know who we are. And secondly and finally, do we know that we have a purpose? Well, Jesus' baptism is really interesting because he didn't need to be baptized because it was a baptism of repentance. John had preached some pretty tough stuff. Anyone who came near him got an earful, a calling back to holiness, to living a life that honored God. And, and so people were convicted and they would want to do something that would be a sign that they were turning back to God and that sign was baptism. And so John would baptize them in the Jordan. And when Jesus came, in, in Matthew's gospel, John says to Jesus, I can't possibly baptize you. But Jesus, in humility, said, well, you must. You must baptize me because I'm identifying. I'm identifying with the world. I'm identifying with those who I've come to speak and live with. And as I was preparing this, I felt God asked me a question. Just as John 3.16 tells us, God so loves the world... Do we so love our world? Do we identify with those we're with? Do we see ourselves as called to love and demonstrate the love of God to those that we're with? Are we for our world? Are we for our colleagues? Are we for our family? Are we for our street? Are we for our community? Are we seeking to demonstrate the love of God? That's our purpose. Just as Jesus is the suffering servant, we don't have to go to a cross for anyone. But we go and lay our lives down for the sake of others, as Christ did for us. That's the purpose. Again, it's simple to say, but hugely challenging to do. Our purpose is to bring the love of God to the world. Do we know that we're loved? Because once we do, that affects our purpose, to bring love to others. So, this morning can I encourage us challenge us perhaps to recalibrate our lives to Jesus my dad's a sailor and um, one of the things I know about sailing I don't know a huge amount but I know this is that if you get your compass reading by even a one degree off and you stay on that bearing by the time you've gone a hundred miles you're a long way off the place you aim to go and so you constantly need to recalibrate yourself back to the, the place you're going constantly remind yourself am I going in the right direction this morning Luke tells us that Jesus is the son of God the suffering saviour of the world are we calibrated to him are we following him
is he center in our sights. Even here, the cross is mentioned. Even here, the cross is alluded to. Jesus identifying in baptism, but at the, on the cross, he identifies himself as the sinner, carrying our sin on himself, even though he was without sin. And on the cross, that's where he brings us back to our relationship with the Father. And maybe this morning, we just need to come again to the cross, come again to Jesus, recalibrate ourselves to him. Maybe for some of us, we need to come and receive his comfort. He's, he won't break a bruised reed. He won't put out a smoldering wick. Maybe our faith feels like that. Well, Jesus comes to strengthen us and to bring light. So imagine if we, this year, were just to put Jesus, who he is, at the center of our lives. Imagine if we were to know the Father's love and approval. We would discover our purpose again, whatever that might be, to demonstrate the love of God to all those we meet through our words and actions. And imagine how different life would be for us and for others if we followed the way of Jesus and so loved our world. What would that look like for our neighbours, for our workplaces, for our family or our enemies? Imagine what God might do in and through us if we were to realign ourselves with him in this moment. Shall we stand together and pray?